Well, hello, good evening, and welcome. Uh, uh, this is PS21, Project for Study of the 21st Century, uh, and welcome aboard to all of you joining us for the first of our discussions on war in the 2020s. Um, so those who don't know me, uh, my name is Pete Apps. Um, I'm the Executive Director of PS21. In my day job, I'm a Global Affairs Commentator for Reuters News Agency, uh, and I'm also a British Army Reservist. Um, We've got a really great panel this evening uh, looking at the way in which conflict is changing, isn't changing, uh, what that means. Uh, we've got perspectives from both sides of the Atlantic. We're going to be bouncing through Asia Pacific, uh, Middle East, uh, technology, all of the kinds of really fun stuff. Um, so without any more ado, I'm going to introduce um, our fantastic panel for this evening. Uh, so first of all, in um, no particular order, uh, we have uh, Zia Morale. Uh, he is a senior research fellow at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst in Camberley. Um, on, for joining us from the other side of the Atlantic, we have Hyatt Alvey, Professor of National Security Studies from the US Naval War College in Rhode Island. And last, but in no sense least, and at the practitioner end of the spectrum, we have Captain Charlotte Bratby, 14 Signals Regiment, also um, Outreach and Engagement Lead for the Wavell Room, which as many of you know, we've partnered with for a variety of events, including this one, British Military um, website, does really, really um, interesting thought from um, young officers and not so young officers um, on uh, and and and, uh, and and other members of the service and civilians on the changing nature of the conflict and how the British military can adapt to that. So a lot of stuff to get through. Um, we're going. We are recording this, as some of you may know. So if you don't want your name to be used, don't say it aloud. Um, we'll take some questions probably around the half hour point, um, but otherwise we'll crack on uh, without any further ado. Um, so, uh, Zia, I mean, you give presentations to officer cadets, you give presentations to young upcoming captains explaining how things are changing. So what should they really be looking at? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if I knew the exact answer to that, Peter, I would work for a hedge fund, right, or a bid against the market. So it's very difficult to forecast, obviously, the hot spots that might escalate into attention that we're not aware of. But if you look at the patterns of both geopolitics, contention between states, but and the legacy of the conflicts that we started kind of the post 2015 era that you start to see some possibilities of where actually things might be next 10 years, right? So in 2014 and later, we have seen how Russian policies, we should have picked the pieces in 2008 in Georgia. So Ukraine shouldn't really have surprised us when it happened in 2014, but you could see how the question of Russia, um, its expansion, its influence, both on the borders, but also beyond it, has caused concerns within the NATO alliance. And we spent a lot of time since 2014 to adjust into that in terms of Russian capabilities, like area denial, access denial, to little green man, all the terms that we threw at um, explaining Russian capabilities, like the little green man, hybrid war and sub-threshold. And I think that aspect of it, which is where you are now seeing an international arena where state competition, actions that don't really amount to a formal declaration of war, but a lot bolder than they were 10 years ago, even five years ago, I think that's going to be a defining factor next five, six years. And, and some people do worry that this will lead to a mimetic escalation, right? So you have Russia on one hand and China on the other hand, with regional ambitions, with global posture that is at odds with the US, that is at odds with Europe. 
European allies. So it poses a lot of challenges for the transatlantic community, security and defense community. And I think that aspect of it, where you are seeing an escalation between China and US um, and Russia and, and North Europe, especially North and East Europe, it is, I think, going to be a lot more defining of our understanding of the global arena than we think. But at the same time, the events in Gaza, um, you know, last couple of weeks have reminded us that just because we want to move to more interesting things like Indo-Pacific, we haven't talked about it for a few decades, or geopolitic geopolitics. We haven't talked about it for a while because we were so bored of that. Um, now we all want to do that, but we're really ignoring the Middle East. And, you, and it reminds you that, hold on a second, we still have the question of Iran, Iran's nuclear ambitions, Iran's denial on the Gulf and what that might mean for energy, trade routes, the tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, in the attack on the Saudi capabilities last September, 2019 September, you know, did have a huge stop of um, global oil production and the price has been kept. Um, but that tension between even Saudi and Russia over the price of oil, the question of Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iran and Israel, um, and the legacy of issues like ISIS. I know the caliph is dead, caliphate has lost its land control, but you have thousands of militants all around the region. And, and if anybody thinks that all of a sudden we're now stopping counterterrorism um, dominance of our defense and security for the last 10, 15 years with Iraq and Afghanistan, just because we're wrapping up, uh, they'll be uh, absolutely myopic on where those trends are. And we will be dealing with non-state actors and terrorism. Look at what's happening in Mali, look at what's happening in Nigeria, look at what's happening in Somalia. And then you have a lot of failing and weak states that is going to create a lot of humanitarian issues, which I know Hayat will pick up as well too. So the world is actually a lot more precarious and vulnerable than it was 10 years ago, both for human security perspective, in other words, lives of individuals who are going through climate change, irregular migration, low economy, poor governance. Look at Lebanon and instability that is caused there by poor governance. But at the same time, you're also seeing an interstate fierce competition where a lot of states, major and regional powers, superpowers and medium powers, don't really shy away from using aggressive force. Look at what happened in Libya with UAE, Egypt on one side, Turkey on the other. Look at what Mohammed bin Salman did, even with the murder of a journalist in a consulate in Istanbul and his aggression in Yemen and the Qatar Gulf Cooperation Council crisis. All of this show a complex topography where I think likelihood of one of these escalating and pulling us into a much larger crisis is very possible, very plausible. Um, and looking at peer adversaries and near peer adversaries has been going on for a few years, but you see the wisdom in that. Why we started talking about these things five, six years ago, like divisional level war fighting. Um, we were focusing on jihadism at that stage, but we already started talking about that macro level military reorientation. So, um, so if you think about next 10 years, I think we are going to see much more sub-threshold activity, in other words, not a formal conflict with another state, um, but not at peace, not at really fully at war, the boundaries of which are, have always been blurred, but intensity of it and possibilities of spillover is quite huge. And I'll end there and to pass over to um, other panelists. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I turn 40 next week, which firstly means I'm probably in the middle of a midlife crisis. But it also- oh, brother, I'm 41. I hear you. I'll buy you a pint next time. <laughs> But it also means that in my adult life, lots of things have started, but none of them have ever stopped. Yeah. So, you know, we had counterterrorism, 9-11. That was a really big deal. None of those risks have gone away. 
We had Iraq. That was a really big deal. None of that's gone away. Cyber 2007 in Estonia. Again, none of it's gone away. You know, you just have this kind of an ever all of almost all the trends I've covered in my last 20 years are continuing to grow and we keep on adding new ones. Um, and that is getting a bit complicated, although very luckily it is keeping me in work. Um, Hayat. Yeah, that's thank you, Peter. That's actually a great prelude to what I'm going to present. And if you bear with me, I'm going to share my slides. <clears throat> uh, Okay, I can't do that. Can can you help me out with that, Lauren? Lauren, can you uh, hi? If you just send them to Lauren on a WhatsApp or an email, then she you should be able to share it now. Sorry. Oh, okay, no problem. Yep, now I can. Thank you. Uh, do you see them? Okay, yes. perfect. So what I'm covering, and if you know me well, you know I'm very cynical. <laughs> And I'm going to extend on what Peter just said regarding uh, kind of the same old things, uh, keeping um, it pace and, and evolving, um, maybe in, in new manifestations, but pretty much the same, uh, same old continues. And I only have a few new items to add, but mainly it's what we are uh, experiencing in the 2020s, in my view, and everything I say will be my personal views, um, has to do with a kind of a continuation and perpetuation of what's happened up to this point. One of the new things are somewhat the broad, broadening of the suffix side, which is Latin for act of killing. So there's a slide on that that's coming up and you'll get an idea of what I mean by that. There are also globalization of hu uh, human rights activism uh, for example, the Black Lives Matter uh, that started in the United States and today is a one year, the one year anniversary of the George Floyd killing. Uh, and we're commemorating that uh, here uh, and remembering it uh, and, and using that as a way to look out in the future in terms of race relations. But the reason why I bring it up is that the BLM actually has globalized. And what we saw with the Palestinian issue and activism uh, actually is in many ways linked to that spirit of globalized um, uh, activism for human rights and civil rights, um, regardless of the, the violence and conflict uh, between Gaza and the Israelis, or I should say Hamas and the Israelis last uh, couple of weeks. The activism is important because it's actually changing and shifting some mentalities towards the Palestinians in the West. And in fact, one news media source actually said, quote, is it, is it the case that uh, the West is actually try, uh, trying to treat the Palestinians finally as human beings, unquote. So um, again, that, that has some linkages to the Black Lives Matter and other kinds of human rights activism globally. In terms of proxy wars and, and counterterrorism ops, uh, my esteemed colleague just before me uh, touched on that. And a lot of it has to do with the flavor of the day. Meaning, for example, Mali was mentioned and uh, ISIS cells and also Al-Qaeda cells proliferating. Don't forget Mozambique is a big one. And that's a flavor of the day as well. And, and in fact, it's very scary uh, and threatening because of the spread and the reach of these cells. They might be small cells, but they have quite the reach throughout uh, the continent of Africa now. 
and also other parts of the world. Um, there, there is less focus even today, sadly, on conflict prevention and resolution. And a lot of it has to do, in my view, uh, with the weapons industry. And if we look at what just happened here in the United States, while the violence between Gaza, uh, Hamas and the, and the Israelis was going on, is the President Biden administration's weapons deal, $735 million deal with Israel. And that's uh, created quite the, lot, uh, quite the controversy here in the United States, um, which in the past, you would not hear anyone say anything about that. Um, there's also the failure, the mass failure of the prevention of genocides and mass atrocities, or even uh, interventions based on humanitarian uh, basis of the R2P, which is the responsibility to protect civilians from uh, genocide and mass atrocities. Uh, examples are Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Myanmar, China, uh, with the Rohingyas, the DRC, Cameroon, uh, the CAR, Central African Republic, most recently and still ongoing, the Tigray region in Ethiopia, Mozambique, and many other places as well. I'm going to touch very quickly on children and uh, uh, how victim, uh, how targets of, of wars and conflicts include children, uh, both as victims as well as um, uh, forced recruitment of children as soldiers. There's still an ongoing massive global refugee and IDP crisis. Landmines continue to cause havoc in many parts of the world. Cyber warfare is a big um, evolution. Uh, and it's getting more and more sophisticated globally, but particularly in the more advanced uh, technologies. Uh, for example, we in the United States just suffered a couple of major cyber attacks, uh, some of them by Russia. Information wars, disinformation wars, uh, war on science, war on democracy and the rise of fascist ideals. That too is very, uh, a scary threat in the, in the West, in particular in Western democracies. War on medical facilities and personnel, even though that's a violation of international law. It's happened in Yemen, it's happened in Afghanistan, it's happened in, in Gaza. And that's actually uh, uh, very detrimental in dealing with um, the, uh, the victims of war. And then we have the case of two former Nobel Peace Prize laureates who are now implicated in genocides and atrocities. One is Aung San Suu Kyi uh, with the Rohingya crisis and she herself is in a crisis right now. Um, and the other one is Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of uh, Ethiopia and what he has done with the, um, uh, the uprising in Tigray region in Ethiopia. Here's the suffix side and how it's broadening. Well, we've had femicide as a, an evolving uh, problem and with a lot of trends in um, uh, just kind of general uh, violence against women, but particularly uh, violence against women in the context of war and, and uh, conflicts, uh, especially rape as a war weapon. That has continued. The murder of children, especially in wars and conflicts and, and atrocities, we see that in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Gaza, uh, and many, many other places as well. Here's a new one for you, ecocide. Ecocide is a major uh, trending activism where uh, activists are trying to 
render the destruction or harm to nature as a uh, as a as an offense, a legal offense, and they're trying to bring it to the ICC level, the International Criminal Criminal Court level. And I personally think that's a great achievement, uh, especially if they they uh, they realize it at the ICC level. And then. Um, What's interesting about the, the start of the Biden administration going into the, our 2020s uh, topic and theme is the, uh, that they began with the Armenian Genocide Statement. Again, a positive step in, in identifying and acknowledging genocides, uh, whether in the past or the present, uh, and hopefully as a marker for preventing genocides in the future, which I'm very pessimistic about, unfortunately. However, that being said, the footnote to this uh, this moment of uh, Biden's um, President Biden's acknowledgement of the Armenian genocide comes with an asterisk, and that footnote is that it's very politicized. So there's a lot of political uh, incentives for doing so. Um, I'm not going to go through these line by line, but just kind of reiterating that rape as a war weapon is a major problem even now, and in uh, as an outlook into the near future. We don't see this being eliminated, uh, but there's still a lot of activism for it. And good thing is that there's a lot of forensic work on genocide and femicide um, being done uh, to bring the likes of the Assad regime, uh, hopefully to justice. Child uh, murder in wars and conflicts, again, we've seen in Gaza, just recently 65 children killed Southern Israel with the rockets that Hamas infiltrated on Israel. He got two children killed. Yemen, I cannot emphasize enough, is a major humanitarian catastrophe. Um, and then of course the genocide in Syria with uh, so many thousands of children killed from 2011, even ongoing today. Attacks on healthcare again, I have some stats here. Again, I won't read this line by line, but just so you know, uh, a lot of these have occurred, and even more recently, in places like Libya, Syria, Yemen, uh, Doctors Without Borders clinics have been targeted as well. And then ecocide, again, uh, there are a lot of good resources on this. And then uh, one of the most detrimental faces behind perpetrating ecocide is Brazil's current president, Bolsonaro, who is really threatening and taking action on harming the Amazon. Landmines continue to be a major problem globally. And the problem with landmines is that, uh, especially the anti-personnel landmines, is that they don't go away when a war or conflict ends. They continue to perpetuate uh, death and damage and injury. Um, and if you're interested, there's uh, lots of good resources on landmines. Uh, genocides and mass atrocities. Th this is a nice NPR link and graphic on um, the countries at high risk of genocides. And unfortunately, again, that whole mantra of never again has uh, uh, not been realized in the 21st century. And to, and to wrap up, wars, conflicts, and genocides and mass atrocities, atrocities continue in the 2020s. We do see new activisms at the global uh, scene. Uh, women and children continue to be targeted for violence. A rape as a war weapon continues. And what's interesting is that the, uh, 
the most recent reports indicate that the COVID-19 pandemic has actually exacerbated sexual violence, uh, particularly on women. State and non-state actors continue to use children as war weapons, uh, uh, soldiers, but also as sexual, uh, girls are usually used as sexual slaves for soldiers. Targeting healthcare personnel and facilities during wars have continued, uh, has continued, landmines are a problem. And my last note is that the United States really needs to play and, and, and her allies need to play a major role in conflict resolution rather than perpetuating the weapons industry and continuing or perpetuating uh, whatever proxy they support in wars and conflicts, uh, one, of which, one of which has been Yemen. Uh, so there is no ins instance of a nation benefiting from a prolonged war. That's a great quote from Sun Tzu. And the real and lasting victories are those of peace and not of war. And that's from our great uh, um, activist of American history, Ralph Waldo Emerson. So thank you for listening. And I look forward to your Q&A. Uh, fantastic. Hi, that's all massively depressing. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, I mean, again, I mean, the, you know, the, uh, on the genocide side of life um, and, and human rights abuses, it still staggers me that the, um, the Uyghur issue in China is on a scale of which we have not seen since the Second World War. Um, you know, again, we've just seen this interception of a, a plane over Belarus, a young blogger walked down crying on the plane the way down that they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me, do not let them take me, and they're just being taken away. Uh, I mean, all of this stuff is really, really pretty grim. Um, Charlotte, I mean, from the pers your perspective as a, uh, as a young and upcoming captain, um, where, 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 should, where should we all be looking at on, 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 on this, side of, this side of life? Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks, Peter and the team at PS21 uh, for having me. Uh, actually, I've just spent the past five weeks on my captain's course. It's a bit, I've been doing it virtually. Um, and I've been living and breathing uh, UK military doctrine uh, for the past five weeks. And just today, we were discussing various operational campaigns um, from Iraq, Vietnam, Gallipoli, um, many more. And we were assessing the effectiveness of uh, British forces decision making, uh, which largely looked at how commanders applied various aspects of doctrine for a specific plan. And we were drawing out the key issues uh, for then and the lessons to be learned for today. Um, and actually, we got into one discussion about what war today could look like um, by you know, assessing what happened then, what have we learned now. Um, and we actually started discussing how we're probably going to see um, more covert operations conducted, um, but using strategic resources. Um, so using these at reach capabilities, um, but also see a rise in the need for good human intelligence um, and the use of verified tip lines as we become increasingly untrusting or skeptical of what we see via virtual means. Um, you know, in the military, we have this uh, three-tier framework of the strategic, operational and tactical. And from this perspective, the war in the 2020s, for me, really does remove the operational uh, level. And actually, it's more of a blend of the strategic and the tactical. 
Um, secondly, I'm really, really interested to hear thoughts about the use of deception. And, you know, deception's actually featured in the news three times over the past two weeks on, on, on various different sort of threads of thought. Threads of thought. And we saw the um, Israeli Defense Force using deception measures on social media against Hamas, you know, making them believe they were going to invade. Um, on the flip side, we saw BBC's Martin Bashir uh, deceiving Princess Diana into an interview by falsifying some bank statements. Um, and then, we, you know, as we just discussed, we also saw a plane being forced to land in Minsk due to a, a false bomb alert and the arrest of a, of a journalist. You know, given all of these events have received some bad press attention, I'm really interested in discussing whether is there a public appetite for deception in 2020? Um, and then finally, I'm also quite interested to talk about one of the points that Hayat brought out on her slide, uh, you know, where we are in the 21st um, century. And one of her points on there was refugees and IDPs. Um, but I'd really like to be a little bit more specific with this and talk about climate refugees. You know, in the military, we train to deploy um, and then deploy and conduct whatever operation we've been trained to do, and then we leave. Um, but what happens uh, when we leave? And it's one of the things that we don't talk about enough. And so what I'm talking about here is, you know, the desertification of places due to military action and couple that with the devastation of climate change, which results in mass migration of people and which then real leads to real security implications for everyone, not just the country where the other refugees might be migrating in. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, the discussion. Yeah, I think the question on deception is really interesting. I mean, it's it's not exactly a new thing, but um, and I think, um, but it, there's no doubt that certainly what the Israelis did in Gaza, um, particularly in terms of actually giving the international media the impression that something was happening that probably wasn't, um, is um, a bit of a new threshold. I mean, it's something you can do very rarely. I mean, the Brits and the Americans did it on a strategic level before D-Day, went to lots of lengths to persuade everyone there was a very large army in Kent and that was about to invade the continent. And everyone seemed to view that, that as being fair enough. The problem is, of course, if you do it too often, no one will believe anything you say. And um, that is um, is inevitably going to be a bit of a problem. Um, the other thing I think, is, I mean, we're seeing both covert We've seen covert operations and there's lots of things that happen that we don't can't explain. So, for example, this explosion on the Iranian tanker off the Lebanese coast a few weeks ago. Uh, no one really got to the bottom of that. Maybe it was Israel, maybe it was you know, a variety of other people. But the point is that it's very, very unclear. Uh, but you also get these overt acts using things that are not usually weapons of war. So there's no question what Belarus has just done with the Ryanair plane. We can see it, it's taking place in plain sight. The Stooks and that attack on Iran was a lot more in plain sight than maybe people thought it was going to be. Um, so you often do know what's going on. Um, it's just that um, it's just that, that there are multiple layers of it taking place at once. And I definitely take Charlotte's point. The operational is finished. It's almost no point training for it, um, which is a bit ironic because that's what the British Army generally does. Captains train to the operational level. Completely worthless because they'll never do it now. Um, you know, the tactical and the strategic, the village, you know, what happens in a village or town immediately becomes strategic. Is the most prepared for it? Not in the slightest. I don't think, uh, you know, I think it's, it's something they really, really struggle with. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's, uh, and you can see that at sort of every, every conceivable level. Um, I mean, uh, Zia, to throw Charlotte's point sort of back to you on, on you know, what is truth? Where does it all go? You know, when you're sitting down training these, training these young men and women, what, what, what do you tell them? 
Yeah, well, I apologize for any damage caused. I mean, look, so I think truth has always been a political process as well as an epistemological question, right? If you remember in the Bible, you know, when Christ says and when Christ is at the trial and Herod says, well, what is the truth? And he walks away because the crowd demands the Messiah to be killed. So in other words, there is an aspect of that, right? That you accept a power relationship, representation, agenda shaping um, what is asserted, given plausibility and distributed as truth. Um, but I think there is genuinely difference now in terms of how overwhelmed we are with accessibility of so much information. And I think that is really new. I mean, there is so much out there being thrown at people at every angle. And I think it numbs people. Um, and, and it makes it really easy for people intentionally or intentionally to play that. I mean, look at what's happening with COVID-19, anti-vaccination issues, which have detrimental outcomes, right? This is not just um, you know, an intentional kind of information game about a campaign. This has real life right away, immediate concerns with the people who hold it. It's not about the world out there, but people do. So I don't think that's new, but I think what is petrifying is in our political moment, and I don't think this is linear. So I think there've been a lot of moments in the world where things look very similar. There've been a lot of moments that things were maybe a bit better. Um, I don't think things are getting better or worse, but this kind of cyclic, reality that we live through, I think you did see a political moment where a lot of powerful states had political figures who were more than happy to undermine international law, international obligations, um, and, and our responsibility. I mean, I, I, was, I was bittersweet smiling when Hayat reminded responsibility to protect. What was the last time we heard that, right? So it's very easy to talk about 1915 as a genocide because it doesn't demand any responsibility, but it's horribly difficult to talk about China that way. So that's why a lot of Muslim states kept completely numb about it, even though they pick up on other things. Um, so I think that very low quality of political actors uh, kind of collapse towards post 90s attitude we have on international law, diplomacy, boundaries, rights and wrongs, standards of journalism. I really mourn the loss of that momentum we had, not perfection, but at least an aspiration of a world that we were aspiring in. I think that moment is gone. So in this kind of multi-layered, multipolar picture, um, that's why I often think offensive realism explains how states see anarchy and chaos and, and pushes their own agendas shamelessly. It's actually very difficult to be a citizen in the middle of all of that. I mean, look, you know, all of us in the school have degrees and postgraduate degrees and professional work on these issues. I feel overwhelmed you know, um, and completely drained, exhausted, and sometimes saying, what is the truth, really? Um, and how much more in average citizen? You know, I've been to most of these countries, like UPT in conflict zones. I know a lot of these actors in person, but I'm, I'm confused. Um, and that's overwhelming. And, and I think that's what we need to protect in our democracies, um, our aspiration and our belief in a better vision for the world in our country, um, and also responsibility politicians have to uphold standards. And I don't know how we regain that. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, we're talking like we have standards, right? I mean, there's actually, you know, the 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 most the, the most overwhelming war of aggression launched in the 21st century under you know, under the cover of over disinformation was launched by the United States and Great Britain in 2003 in Iraq, you know, and we did it very very badly, and um, it had a catastrophic effect on regional security on a scale of which probably outstrips anything that the US or China have done, sorry, the China or Russia have done in their near abroad so far. Doesn't mean that they won't. But it really is a, you know, it's as someone described it as the, you know, it's the, the meteorite that killed the dinosaurs, right? Um, you know, 
it you know we 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 act as though we have the moral high ground we act as though we've been the defenders of a rules based system over the last um 25 years and and that's not necessarily how the rest of the world sees us at all i mean hayat i mean when you're sort of you're 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 training people who are sort of on the on the on the border of the strategic decision makers right if you're a us destroyer captain you know us aircraft carrier captain you are pretty damn strategic and you know you're pretty damn strategic uh, i mean how 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 are they coping with this really new and with this complex world, um, certainly compared to the world of, sort of 2003, 4, 5, where it was supposed to be really simple and they were told what they needed to do and then maybe it turned out to be a bit more complicated? Well, it's made our jobs harder as professors because um, uh, we, we do try, this is our, our mission, we try to get them to think more broadly and critically about how to uh, be more strategic. Um, but how, when I talked about the flavor of the day, I meant like, what is the big, you know, hanging, low hanging fruit for strategic uh, competition? And right now it's great power competition, presumably with China. So uh, really that's what's on their minds. So uh, whereas everything else is continuing, uh, you know, whatever is going on in the Middle East or uh, Africa is the most neglected region, of course, except for counterterrorism. Um, but in the context of great power competition, Peter, um, United States uh, strategic thinkers, whether military or civilian, are mostly worried about what China is doing, including in Africa, including in uh, other parts of Asia um, and Europe and even Latin America. So. The, the flavor of the day right now is great power competition with China. I mean, Charlotte, I mean, to what extent does that filter down to the sort of level that, you, the, that you're operating at? And uh, to take a, a step back, when you're looking at all those sort of, all those, all those things, that, all those sort of key campaigns of the past, um, but I mean, the, you know, the standard you know, SO1, SO above level officers, you know, works in the Iraq and Afghan campaigns. Um, which we seem to struggle, we seem to explore rather less for lessons, despite the fact that they're really not very long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, I am just like a lowly captain um, that just gobs off a little bit now and then. Um, but from for us, how much does it drip feed down? It almost comes back to that sort of need to know. Um, you know, if you're working in that department, then you find out about what's going on, I guess. But in terms of it dripping down to my level it absolutely doesn't um and I think it's almost like a it's almost like a falsity that as well and you know we the people who deployed operations like we said we're getting rid of the operational level and we, we really are sitting it now between the strategic and the tactical and um and at what rank does the tactical sit at it's usually going to be you know very very junior officers and and soldiers um that commit to this and we should really be pulling them in on the conversation no, I think it's, I mean, I think and, you know, the, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that roll out of that, I think. Um, uh, Lauren, can we pull out some questions out of the chat? Because I know there's been quite a lot of stuff going on there and I've, I'm not able to skim, uh, to read more than the kind of heads. I know we've seen a question on carrier strike. Uh, I know we've seen questions on, well, yeah, I'm going to let you pull out, pull out two or three questions, I think. Uh, sure. Uh, so the first one, I'll just read... A few. Um, so the first one, um, is it helpful to consider causes of war? Are, there, are they about resources, water, land, religion, power of wealth? That's a really good question. Well, let's pull out another. Um, 
Uh, haven't cyber deception operations been applied tactically, operationally, and strategically? From Dale. Okay, interesting. Um, what was the couple of last questions? Someone is having a go at my uh, suggestion that the operational level is disappearing. Um, I mean, um, can you just read that one out? And Bill Aiken had a good question as well, which I've immediately forgot. And I'm going to need to read back. Um, Bill's question. Um, do the panel think there is an overall inevitable natural level of conflict in human affairs, a few large or small conflicts? Um, is what we see just the short-term ebb and flow of conflict and new means of su sustaining it? Fantastic. What was that one on the operational and the tactical just before we um, move on to those, which are about as big questions as you can possibly have? Please answer with reference to conflicts from the Trojan Wars onwards. Um, um, that's the one at cyber one, I think, Pete, that you have seen. Oh, okay. Marks um, on having cyber deception operations been applied tactically, operationally, and strategically. Um, okay. A so, bunch of good questions there. Charlotte, do you want to take any of those in any particular order that you want? Um, so I'm quite interested in the cyber one. Um, and I, and being a, a uh, an EW regiment, um, we do um, dabble, I guess, in the cyber space. Um, and a lot there is discussion that you know can cyber ever be conducted at the tactical level? Um, and genuinely, it, it absolutely can. And it comes down to what the objective is. Um, so for strategic objectives, you're going to see strategic resources being used uh, and the same for operational and tactical. Um, and actually, one of the big things that we're going to see, particularly under the integrated review, is um, there's an investment of light and medium forces and heavy forces. There's just not that investment in heavy forces anymore. When I talk heavy forces, I'm thinking like big equipment, machinery. There's a more bigger investment in the in, in light forces. Um, and that again, really it sits at the tactical level. So cyber operations absolutely can sit uh, at all levels and, and we will see an increase in how they're employed at the tactical level, I think moving forward. Although, of course, if the tactical level, if you turn the lights off in a village or achieve a tactical effect in a, somewhere like Ukraine, you may discover that you've got a fairly strategic implication really, really quickly. Um, uh, Haya, do you want to take the one on causes of wars? Yeah, thank you, Peter. Um, I think it's not only important to assess causes of war, which the bottom line for me has always been human security related issues like uh, government not um, or regime not meeting the basic fundamental needs of society of, of their people. Human security, right, uh, is really the bottom line. Uh, but I think we also need to revisit the question of how do we define war in the 21st century? What is the definition of war? Uh, are we looking at um, new uh, domains like cyber and even space um, and underwater and others that are integrating in ways into, um, into new territories and means, ways and means for warfare, uh, as well as other kinds of um, variables. I think we need to readdress and revisit the definition of war itself. That's really interesting. I'm going to throw it to Zia in a moment. I remember when I was covering the Sri Lanka War, which no one remembers now because it's quite a long time ago, there was a period where everyone was, there was a lot of 
um, so irregular attacks, um, you know, extrajudicial killings. Everyone is this what war looks like now? And then one day we got up and the sky was on fire, the roads were clogged with refugees, and the ground was shaking because people were firing heavy artillery. So I think there's an you know, there's an element to which yes, war looks a bit different. Uh, you know, and, and again to come back to that point on operational strategic, the operational domain reappears when your war gets big enough. Um, and in essence, which it very rarely does these days, um, but when you get to the stage where actually, you know, battalion, brigade, divisional maneuvers don't make the news because there's so much really, really big stuff going on um, that it's actually um, that 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 kind of maneuver warfare comes back into in, into play, uh, which happens rarely, but when it does happen, it happens pretty hard and it happens pretty heavy. Um, Zia, um, carrier strike. I mean, in terms of the um, the border between the operational and the strategic. You know, really taking a really big ship, taking it all the way around the world through every dodgy bit, Eastern Med, Gulf, and then onwards up to um, up to the Far East. I want to come back to you and Grant's question on Taiwan in a second. I mean, what, what does that say about, you know, I mean, that, that's a very 1990s kind of approach. You know, the, the, these, these carriers were designed for a world of the sort of the Iraq war era. I think they were imagined to do sort of, you know, Iraq war type interventions now taking place in a great power era. What, what, what can we learn from that? Yeah, look, I think it's a great reminder that if you just go with the flavor of the month, as Hayat said, you know, the, the question that buzzes us, then you kind of forget the fact that these things matter, like having naval capabilities, being able to roam around the world and demonstrate that you'll be able to deploy, that you'll be able to support your allies, turns out to be really important. So you can't necessarily just tweet your way out of the next war, right? So you still have a very physical capability side to it. So on its own, no military maneuver has any magical solution to it, right? It needs to be part of the broader framework of deterrence and your foreign policy or how you're positioning your country vis-a-vis -vis the developments and what message you intend to give with that. So if you look at the integrated review and the kind of direction of the British foreign policy in this kind of moment, you can see how that fits in. Even though you could assess it to be militarily, well, what do you actually achieve? The guys get experience, Britain demonstrates its capability that it can move, but how many aircraft carriers do we really have? What is actually our scope vis-a-vis -vis what China has and what others do? But it fits into that diplomatic conversation on where does UK see itself in the world? Um, what is the deterrent framework that we're working towards to? And for us, it's always our relationship with the United States and our place within the transatlantic alliance. So you can never imagine a war that it will face on its own, right? It will always face it with its allies, but it also needs to demonstrate what it brings onto the table, what capabilities it has, both for its own deterrent kind of stand, but also for making its own case as a UN Security Council member. So to that extent, I see the maneuver of, of the, the, the sale um, to be important as a message given by the government that actually UK is paying attention to Indo-Pacific developments. Um, you know, some of the concerns that we have over China are different than United States, right? So nobody in London really thinks we are set for an outright co confrontation with China. Thankfully, it's a lot more nuanced and complicated. We accept the fact that there are challenges with Chinese activities in the South China Sea with the islands. There's question of Taiwan. Hong Kong question has been really important for us. There's the question of Uyghur Muslims in Northwest China. There's the question of counterintelligence, integrity of our information and infrastructure and Chinese activities to steal them and harm them. But at the same time, we also see opportunities in economic terms, in diplomatic terms. You are engaging with a state that is UNC. Security Council member that is one of the major powers in the world, UK has to work with them. So within that balancing act, UK is both signaling 
it to its allies a particular message, a capability that is demonstrating, and hopefully fitting that in into a broader, much more nuanced foreign policy. Well, I'm going to throw that to Hyatt to see how the UK is actually sort of, you know, if the if the target audience is the transatlantic alliance, it doesn't get much more transatlantic alliance than the US Naval War College in Rhode Island. So, uh, I mean, are we doing well? Are we doing badly? Our history in the Middle East over the last 20 years has been what one might politely refer to as mixed. Um, but, you know, are we getting better, getting worse? What do you think, Hyatt? I'm a diehard pessimist, Peter, I'm afraid. Um, see, I don't see anything dynamic uh, in terms of change on the ground or change politically, economically, and in security means, unless you have dynamic leadership. And that hasn't happened in the Middle East uh, for decades. You don't see dynamic leadership. You don't see leaders uh, and political systems embracing democracy and freedoms and rights. Uh, uh, in spite of uh, what Western attempts have been made um, <laughs> to do so, whether overt or covert, uh, or soft power or hard power use uh, to do so, to democratize. Uh, the only exception I've seen is Tunisia after the 2011 Arab Spring Revolution, uh, which I call the Arab Awakening. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, I don't even see a step forward in terms of democratization and good, um, progressive, economic, um, uh, socioeconomic um, uh, steps forward. I see status quo, I see economic stagnation, I see climate stagnation, I see refugee and IT, IDP problems increasing rather than decreasing, um, and water and food insecurity rising. And that's going to continue that cycle of violence between regimes and their uh, and the populations. Sorry to be so dark. That, that's okay. We're getting a lot of really interesting questions on uh, origins of war, purposes of war. Charlotte asked a really good question about where our red lines are. Um, Charlotte, do you want to sort of summarize what some of that chat's going on on down there at the moment? Yeah. So there's some great uh, discussions about you know what what is war and how do we define it. And um, I asked a question about um, you know. Do, by defining war, does this mean that we actually understand where and what our red line is? Um, you know, we've had state-sponsored killings on British soil um, that didn't equate to um, a war, just further sanctions, and not really severe sanctions, I'd probably argue, um, but it's still not war-worthy, even though we have British civilians killed. Um, and then uh, we've had Bill Aiken, who's saying that red lines are going to shift according to economic, uh, political and financial needs and, and favours offered. And I think that goes back to my point um, into, you know, that we, this investment in light forces and war, you know, future wars. We're going to need really good human intelligence and really good sort of verified tip lines. Um, you and then what you mean by a tip line? Um, so a tip line is um, someone who's willing to give you information uh, that you might be interested in. So they might be not uh, naturally aligned with you. Uh, they could naturally align with an, an opposing force, um, but they're willing to feed you information. Or it could be um, that you've got a, a civilian who's um, sympathetic for both sides uh, and they're willing to feed you information for what's happening. 
I mean, I think, you know, it's, to be honest, it's a success if HMG, well, certainly if the military can find out what can actually find, get a system to brief them what's actually on the internet at any given shape or time. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think that the, 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 and that's not necessarily critical. I mean, the, the speed with which things turn over at the moment is very, very fast. Um, you know, we've got, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about narratives, but I don't think we really sort of think about what we mean by that. You know, what actually people think is happening at any given time uh, is becoming very, very balkanized. So different people have very different stories. I mean, higher in the Middle East, the understandings of what was going on in, say, Gaza, for example, massively different on US media versus European media, even more different when it comes into um, into Middle East media, right? I mean, they're completely different universes. Uh, and the same goes for, 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 for a bunch of other questions. Um, Zia, the Taiwan question, if there's going to be a catastrophe in the next decade that could really, really, really see things going wrong, Taiwan feels like it's edging pretty pretty high up that list, right? How, how do you yeah. see that? Happening? Look, it's very difficult. I mean, you could see how Japanese are reading the developments, how Taiwanese are reading the developments, how we've been paying attention to Hong Kong question, the islands that are popping up, Chinese investment into a lot of critical port areas in Horn of Africa, you know, in the Middle East and in the Pacific and Indian Ocean, etc. So you clearly can see a trajectory or some sort of standoff at some stage with some powers on what is acceptable. Like Charlotte made the good point that, you know, we decided to respond to Salisbury attack in a different way with another context in history would have been responded completely differently. So what would change the context within which some of these Chinese activities would be seen as, as unacceptable passes the line. Look at Obama's red lines in Syria, right? If you remember in 2013, I mean, he said, red lines are the chemical weapons, you know, and then it happened and then he didn't do anything. And then it led us to Russian entry in 2015 in full blown. So for Taiwan, again, I mean, it is a very precarious situation and people have different scenarios. They see it as more of a gradual build up, maybe with what similar things, political games and pressure. We honestly don't know. Um, would China go that way? What would that mean? How would US react to it? So don't forget, I mean, that's an, an important aspect of the conversation, whether US sees that as actually a red line that cannot be passed. But given the broader context of US-China competition and kind of perception of each other as a direct challenger um, and this kind of security dilemma that is being created because China is investing in a lot of technology and you know a, a lot of capabilities in US. There's already a new nuclear arms race that is unfolding with modernization process across the world. Um, so you can see a new security dilemma emerging and spark of a mistake or another arena we didn't think about, I think it's really real. Like North Korea, we didn't mention that much, but it's still there. I mean, the guy is still pushing its agenda and, and our South Korean allies are still feeling the threat and questions around it. Um, what can light the fire? I think it could be a lot. I mean, I, I, I think given the complexity of factors, the variables that shape this current conflicts, which is really, I think, exceptional, um, I wouldn't really... Um, kind of, I wouldn't deny a chance of a war starting by idiosity or some stupid decision or somebody pushing the boundaries a bit further than they think they can get away with, not intentionally. Um, so then we'll see. And again, I totally agree. The boundaries between war and peace um, are very difficult in real life terms, exact boundary, but you know when you're at war and you know the ideal of peace, that in between space gets a bit convoluted and it's going to be a political judgment with our allies. Article 5 of NATO had to be reinterpreted and adopted in the cyber age. At what stage a cyber attack on us 
would count as a declaration of war. Now we have a bit more thinking about that, where, you know, at what stage would it be an Article 5 scenario? There's a lot more thinking about it now than before. So these new technologies do pose these questions, but it's going to boil down to a political decision. Same on Taiwan, same on some of the cyber attacks and et cetera. I want to come back to Hayat on the Middle East and some Iran questions about the, particularly the question that you and asked about Iran and the bomb. But Charlotte, do you want to talk about, uh, just, just, just sort of summarize some of that Shidi was asking about, um, uh, will, will modern war always be sub-threshold? Um, do you want to say that, I mean, to which the answer, I suppose, is hopefully, but you won't half notice if it isn't. Um, yeah, no, exactly that. Um, so he's asked, you know, is war in the 2020s not always going to be sub-threshold? And I think, um, partic- and I, I'm going to keep going back to, uh, you know, what's in the public domain about the integrated review and, and this idea that we're, um, you know, he, this is pitched, the integrated review is pitched is that we are at war now and that we are in this constant competition, which is why, um, we probably well we have seen a reduction in the aid budget and an increase in the defense budget and that's like that sends out a real strong message about you know where the UK is willing to put their money where they're willing to go uh, forward and, and like I said the war in the 2020s you know yes sub-threshold activities you know, how it's pitched we are at war now and it's very hard for me I consider myself at the tactical level to p- put yourself in that that, that, that mind, you know, I'm at war now. What does that mean? I need to be ready. Um, you know, what does readiness look like? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, what does readiness look like? What does constant competition look like? And are the military the right way of doing this? Because one of the things that taking the aid work budget and then giving it to the military is that you take it away from 38-year-old um, aid workers and you give it to 29-year-old captains um, who really only know how to blow stuff up, or at least that's their primary skill set. So it's kind of, you know, you get, um, you know, you, you're, 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 you're not just changing how, you're changing how you think about it, you're changing the sort of people you're using to think about it, and you're, you're, you're going to people who have a very different bunch of skill sets and, and by and large have been trained um, to use a particular type of hammer and then apply it to um, to other to other areas, and I think um, there are probably some questions as to how appropriate that can be. Um, Hayat, I mean the Iran question, the Middle East. We don't know, you know, Iran getting the bomb. Uh, you know, there's been some really really interesting um, uh, changes in terms of um, of how the Middle East is operating. Indeed, Peter, uh, we have elections coming up in Iran and they are far from open and free and democratic. Um, They've already, they being the uh, regime, um, powers that be in the regime have already constricted uh, the candidates down to who they favor. Uh, And it looks like the hardliners are going to be the only acceptable candidates and that's not good news. Um, the hardliners in Iran are the ones who uh, want to see um, nothing but full advantages for their reason for being, essentially, uh, the whole system and structure of, of the hardliners in the regime, which are called the revolutionary protectors of the revolution of 1979. Um, United States lost a lot of credibility when the Trump administration pulled out of the JCPOA. Uh, And then you have to ask yourself, Peter, if you're in the shoes of a um, negotiator from the Iranian delegation, to what extent are you you going to trust the, uh, the now the Biden administration's delegation? 
and vice versa as well. Um, you know, the, there are credibility issues for the United States to worry about with regard to Iranian regime as well. What do I predict? Uh, it's really hard to predict. I can't, uh, maybe there'll be a JCPOA 2.0, maybe. Uh, that's a big maybe. Um, I think that Iran, with the help of Russia, uh, might have some, some leverage on negotiating uh, maybe more in the favor of the, the percentage of uranium enrichment than before in the original JCPOA, if they go forward. And there's, a, there's always the risk, there's always the opportunity for all of this to fizzle because of those credibility issues. And when you say fizzle, you mean that the, 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 the process for stopping the war fizzles rather than the tensions fizzle. It can. Any side can pull out, but particularly the Iranian delegation can pull out at any time. Um, so uh, again, all they have to do is cite the credibility or lack of credibility issue regarding the United States, given what the Trump administration did. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting point in the chat. Soldiers build and guard as well as shoot things and destroy. But they do use effects words. You know, it's a particular kind of way of thinking when they're when 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 they're doing things, which is very different to the way in which those more sort of civilian agencies work. I mean, Charlotte, you're obviously seeing a sort of militarization of quite a lot of areas in which the, the British in which the British state does things. Um and um I mean, how do you think? I mean, that is not what the training process is currently built for, right? I mean, it's gradually sort of flexing a bit, but this tends to be the, the last week of the course from when I did my captain's course, where you, so they try and try and ram it all into a week at the end. Yeah, and actually, uh, so I went on uh, Warfighter in America at the start of the year, so like two months in Texas. And interestingly, um, it was what it says on the tin, it was warfighting with a little bit of stability thrown in at the end. And actually, um, you know, stability starts at the start of the war. Someone should be working up um, stability operations from the very, very beginning. Um, and, and that just never happened. So, you know, we'd, we'd, I don't think we train for appropriately for stability operations. And actually one of the things that I was um, discussing today, so my, my topic that I was uh, discussing today was Iraq and uh, I was doing assessing the effectiveness of British forces decision-making for Operation Telic 1 to 5. And one of the things that um, I pulled out in my discussion was that um, do we train effectively for war fighting and peacekeeping is there are there any exercises that we can do which exercises both aspects at the same time and it's really really hard question uh, to answer um, and then one of I think one of the, uh, Anthony Curry put here about our, our medics and our engineers and logistics do UN aid work and I actually deployed on uh, Operation Trenton in South Sudan um, which was a, a UN uh, deployment um, and what's interesting that is that we're actually the aid work that we are there to do isn't um, civilian facing we're not doing it for the refugees we're doing work for the UN so actually the medics that were deployed the logisticians that were deployed the engineers that were deployed were working for the UN not for the uh, civilians of the country. And again, that's a really, really hard concept to get your head around. You, know, you expect to go to these countries and make a real difference to the civilians, the lives of the people that really need it. Yet our money and our resources are being committed by providing a function for the UN to enable other aid workers to come into the country and do that uh, really critical aid work. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch, there's an entirely really interesting conversation about what UN peacekeeping actually is versus what people think it should be and um, and how that kind of works. Because I think um, there's quite a lot of areas, and Mali is probably a really good example, where, um, you know, there's a, the, the, the gap between what people sort of thought might be achieved and what it actually looks like on the ground could be actually really quite broad. Um, and we've also seen, I mean, you know, one of the great exam questions of the 21st century is how you could have done Afghanistan better. And there was an assumption when I was 21 and we first went into Afghanistan that we would hand over to the UN, uh, both there and in Iraq, and that actually a bunch of blue-helmeted people would be doing this job. And instead, we got into this very operational cycle whereby you would put a British combat brigade through Helmand in um, a plan that, that felt to me as if it was very much sort of, in, in exercises in the UK, we, we put a large force in and it wins. And then there's a stabilization bit, which is like the last week. And then it's then you've won and everyone goes, goes home because otherwise the exercise doesn't really work. And, and we sort of planned a decade of the Afghan war based on those kind of scenarios. Um, except, of course, it never ended at the end of the you know, ex-brigade's deployment. And quite a lot of the time, it was quite a lot worse. And um, and you end up with these sort of very, very perverse sort of planning cycles. And how you deal with that in, a, in, a, in an era that is much more, you know, that has now got that great power overlay, um, I think is, is, is a really kind of, is a really interesting question, particularly for the UK, which I think, plans on the assumption that it's the US and that's not how it works. So um, you know, you've got to, you know, you're, you're a mid-tier power operating in, with a whole bunch of larger beasts or at least equi-sized beasts running around you. Uh, I mean, last question to everyone. Um, firstly, if you were to pick one development of the last month that you think is most significant, so I'll give you Gaza, I'll give you Belarus, I'll give you carrier strike and the other things. I'll give you a couple of minutes to kind of run back. If it's if it's if it's forty days ago, I'm not gonna not gonna get really angry. But um, you know that is the most significant and why. Um, and the second, um, because this is a mainly UK kind of you know crowd. Um, what is the main lesson for the UK of something we've either done right or wrong um, over the last few years that we need to get right in the coming era? And I'm going to throw it to. Um, Zia first, I think, because like Charlotte really hard, and yeah. I'm really, um, and then higher, and then and then Charlotte. Yeah, look, I mean, I think to me, concurrency of a lot of issues is the main challenge. But if you're going to pick up one, what we've seen in the latest Gaza developments is actually a new threshold, right? Both in regards to support to Israel in the United States, you see the fracturing there, and you see a much more critical attitude emerging. Um, European perspectives, um, the acceptance that two-state solution is dead, but one-state solution, depending upon who says it, is very difficult. And actually, the assumption of trajectory of things have been shattered. So I do think um, what has happened in Gaza is going to take a few months to actually dissect and see what that means for the future of Hamas, its backers, as well as Israel, as well as the Israeli never-ending election cycle and difficulty of achieving a government there, and also European and North American attitudes that are shifting. Um, that will have a lot of, I think, long-term repercussions. We're not really certain yet. But what happened with Belarus also, um, you know, it, and even EU's reaction actually was quite exactly everything I tweeted about. So they read my tweets and they do it. Um, but I was actually pleased to see the, the very tangible steps right away they've taken, because I think they realize we've just passed another threshold um, in, 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 on continental Europe itself. Um, and, and that is actually going to be very significant um, in regards to whether EU can achieve a foreign policy coherence for once, 
and be more proactive on this. But actually, I think there is a common sense that actually things cannot go on as it is. So I think we should see um, more kind of strategic aftershocks or what just happened in Belarus for the next few months. Right. I'm going to come back to you on the, on the UK questions here because uh, you haven't answered it. Uh, but uh, Hayat, on the, on, the bigger, on, the, on the last month. Yeah, putting uh, Gaza and the uh, conflict we just uh, witnessed under a microscope, we see something that is very troubling, and that's the uh, rise of communal violence between Israeli Arabs and, uh, uh, and Israelis. Um, and kind of dissecting that in itself, you see an intensifying extremism on both sides, Jewish extremism as well as is Islamist extremism. Uh, on the rise and intensifying. And on a broader scale, what I think we haven't brought into our discussion today because it's not really directly war related, but it's, it's the role of uh, Turkey and Erdogan uh, in the Middle East region. And it is slightly related to the war in Syria and, th and developments that have happened there. And not to forget that the war in Syria is still not over. And that, that's true of Yemen as well. So. Um, these things are still going on and they still need to be stopped. I mean, it's a Turkey's ending point, probably worth a whole event in its own right. I mean, Turkey is not just a player in the Middle East, right? It's also a player in Central Asia and you know, the, the war in Nagorno-Karabakh last year. You know, Turkey, really important player, fairly important player with the Uyghurs. Um, you know, so, you know, you're dealing with, a, you know, a, a greater Turkish foreign policy having a greater degree of relevance than it's maybe had for a very long time. I don't remember people thinking a lot about what Turkish foreign policy in Central Asia was in the 90s or the early 2000s. Charlotte, let's take the sort of bigger picture first. Now I'm going to ask you the British question and then we'll run through the other two as well. I'm really struggling with the British question, but... <laughs> yes, I mean, that is, that therein lies the problem. <laughs> I'm really struggling with that one. Um, but I think I'm... I, from the sort of the conflict side of life, I'm going to have to agree that I think Gaza has been um, quite significant. And I think the reason why it's been significant is because it's been a really visual conflict. I mean, I, I'm, when I think about Gaza, I, I'm thinking about the Iron Dome and, and, you know, and the incredible air defence system and just how the, the pictures and the images that have come out of that, um, it just makes it, it almost brings it home. It makes it really easy for people to understand about what is going on and, and how and the scale of the conflict as well. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, I'm really, really struggling with the British question. Well, <laughs> uh, see, so yeah, I mean, this is what you're I mean, uh, uh, the, the carrier strike, we are told, is yeah. proof that we are a nation with intent. Yeah. I'm not sure that if your proof of intent is a big grey ship, that shows that you know what your intent is. Yeah, look, I live by the sea. I love the ships. But look, I think that question, the UK question, I think is a difficult one because we are going through a substantial reorientation of British foreign policy and positioning in the world through Brexit, right? So what it means and how it will unfold our relations with Europe, our relations with United States. But I think with integrated review, at least you have seen some sort of articulation of it or a UK that is actually quite active globally, right? What it can achieve, what it can delivers anybody's guess we are limited financially capability the smallest forces in our history so there is huge limits to what britain can do but i think britain wants to remain on the table and maximize interests and it will stick with its allies and that's okay as the world is in chaos if that's the british ambition i'm okay with that what concerned me with brexit politics was the more reactionary 
isolationary kind of Britain. It's almost like I'll shut down the borders and engage with the world on Skype. Nobody come. I'm not responsible to anybody. I just want to watch Dunkirk movies, um, you know, with Nigel Farage. Thankfully, we're not there. We are on another end, which is great. It's exciting. But what we can achieve is limited. And I think that humility is actually there as a lesson in the system. We do know the limits of what Britain is able to do, should do, and can do. But we have to push and maximize those interests. I mean, Hayat, I mean, coming back to that Britain question, which you dodged earlier, um, <laughs> as, 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 as a, you know, there's a lot of competing powers in the Middle East and the world. Turkey, we just talked about, you know, France doing stuff in Lebanon, uh, you know, obviously the United States doing its thing, Russia, China, big lot bigger players than they were how does britain fit into that kind of that that situation i think regardless of any american political administration coming to power or replacing a previous one uh american leadership always sees britain as a close ally um the only uh consolation i have is that we now have biden and you guys still have boris johnson sorry <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, but um, you know the thing is that uh, that being said, though, on a daily basis, we still have a struggle in the United States to uh, protect and preserve our American democracy, and we hope we hope that um, Britain is able to protect and preserve its democracy and uh, and continue the the long alliance we've had with each other. I still see a strong NATO. I'm not sure in terms of what kind of roles we'll see for NATO in the near and distant future. Um, uh, and along those lines, I still see uh, a strong alliance between the United States and Britain as well. I mean, Charlotte, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask you questions on the future British democracy or any things that you are barred from answering under Queen's regulations. So we can just assume you have no opinions on any of those. Um, but I mean, back in the sort of, what is it that we do well? if anything. So I, I've, I've got an answer. I've got an answer. So yeah. I was just, I was, I read this morning about a young trooper who's a, a deployed on Mali um, and he mentioned um, some really great things that they've been doing out there. And actually they said they'd been on the longest patrol um, that any of the countries have been on that are committed to uh, MINUSMA. Um, they're really pushing uh, the UN uh, out there about to be a bit more risk averse and let them do like let them br bridge all those capability gaps. Um, and you know that's one of the things that I quite like about uh, the UK military. We're, we're quite um, flexible. We're quite adaptable. And actually, we'll give anything a go. Um, and we're we're quite risk averse. And I think that's what I'd say that we're doing quite well at the moment. Yeah, I've read a great sentence from John Nagel, um, US, former US Army colonel, um, in Iraq, who described the British approach to stabilisation operations as giving a lot of agency to a mid, low, young or mid-ranking officer who knows nothing about the country that they're in. Um, and, um, and, 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 and he, that, he didn't make it sound as negative as that sounds, if that's it. You know, it, it, you know there was a grudging admiration to that. Um, I think, um, but um, that certainly sort of, it was an interesting view of how you know, he had perceived the Brits approach, particularly in the early part of the, of the war on terror. Um, thank you so much. It's been a really great discussion. Uh, we've got had some really fantastic panelists. I think it's really good to get, uh, I particularly like getting national security academics who teach service personnel, because I think um, 
it's a really, really useful kind of dynamic. I think it's really good to have practitioners like uh, Captain Bratby on as well. Um, and I think with any luck, we will do more of these going forward. Um, in terms of, oh, we're very open to suggestions um, uh, of, as to how to do this. I rather like the idea of sort of framing this as sort of what have we learned about war this month? Because um, I think there tends to be enough coming out of the world to keep that kind of interesting going forward. Um, we're still making a decision on whether we're going to run these through the summer. Obviously, people are getting less enthusiastic about Zoom as the weather gets better. Uh, but we will definitely be running a bunch of really interesting events from the autumn onwards. Um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we might even be able to run an event that people can actually physically go to. Um, because we always used to say that the PS Run is a think tank that drinks together and therefore thinks together. Um, and we haven't had a chance to do that for a very long time. So with any luck, we will get back to doing that. Uh, we've been PS21. Um, uh, thumbs up from the uh, to the Royal Corps of Signals to the Royal Logistics Corps. So we've got, um, got some, uh, please continue online. We in India love it. Yes, no, absolutely. If we're doing stuff in reality, we will keep up a degree of this live streaming. I know we've had quite a lot of people joining from the States. Uh, I know we've got people joining from elsewhere and I think that's given a really good and different energy to what we're doing. So any suggestions, comments, otherwise donations, definitely. Lauren, do you want to talk a bit about our search for volunteers? Uh, yeah, we are on the search for interns, uh, project organizer interns. If you'd like to uh, apply, please be in contact, um, basically to help run our events. So uh, please do give us an email, uh, particularly my email address, lauren.gretz at ps21, uh, sorry, lauren.gretzps21 at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, we'd love to have you on board. So please, please do apply if you're interested. Charlotte, do you want to say anything quickly on behalf of the Wavel Room before we let you all go? Um, yeah, as always, um, <laughs> dial into the Wavel Room, chat, uh, get with it, get on us on Twitter at Wavel Room. Um, we've got loads of great stuff coming up, loads of great articles. Please, please, please do contribute. And if you do have any spare change, obviously donate to the PS21, but also to the Wavel Room because we love you eternally and forever. <laughs> yeah, and this stuff, this stuff is cheap, but it ain't free. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. We'll sign out. Lauren, you can shut, that, shut, shut us down and kick everyone out. But thank you so much. You've been a great audience and an even better panel. So take care. Bye now. Thank you.